Thank you, Brenton. Glad you're back, man. Glad you're feeling better. It's good to see you. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning. We're going to look at Romans chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there this morning. And if you'd like to follow along with the teaching notes, those are available online. We'll have the website posted up here on the screens so that you can access those. You can download them. You can follow along throughout the teaching if you'd like. But those are a resource for you all. I'm gonna read this passage here from Romans chapter one. We've been in a, this is the third part in a series called Confidence in the Cross. I'm gonna read this passage here, a few of the verses, and then we'll pray. Romans chapter one, beginning in verse one. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Skip to verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we love you and we love your son and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the richness that comes to us through the word of God, that you have given us the riches of your glory and grace and that you've revealed them, you've revealed Christ to us through your word, through the testimony of these eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And we ask that your word would gain entrance and have access in our hearts. We ask, Lord, just like in Ephesus in the book of Acts where the word of the Lord grew mightily and it prevailed. And we ask for that prevailing word even this morning. We ask for the word of God that prevails over our hearts and over our circumstances, that prevails over our emotions that prevails over the way that we think, the way that we feel, even in this moment, that the word of God would gain entrance into our heart and that we would encounter Christ, that we would see him, that we would walk away this morning loving Jesus more, loving the work of Christ and glorifying in God all the day, that our hearts would be filled with joy everlasting. We love you, Lord, in your name, amen. Well, if you're looking at the teaching notes, you can look at paragraph A. Before the coming of the Lord, the Lord is going to establish his people in wholehearted confidence and in love before him. The mature bride, the people of God, in the end of the age, and we know that those last days began way back, even at the day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago, the Lord is bringing his people into a deep place of maturity. 
And instead of the word maturity, I'm using this term confidence. The Lord wants his people to be established in confidence, and there will be a generation of believers on the earth before the day of his appearing that will be the most confident people in Christ, in the work of God, established in love, established in purity and holiness. And when you read the description of the church in the New Testament before that day, I mean, it is just staggering to imagine that there's going to be this glorious church that is holy and blameless in the Lord, even before his coming. The New Testament, the letters of the New Testament, they highlight the importance of believers being established or being confident in the love of God, being confident in what Christ has done for us so that we know how to live and engage day to day as strangers, as aliens. Bible refers to us as pilgrims on a journey through this age and in the age to come. The Lord is going to establish us in faith or confidence through Christ's work on the cross and his affections rather than human effort and human works. And one of the things that you see throughout the scripture is the Lord confronting the confidence that we have in carnal human strength or in carnal human wisdom or in carnal human finances and resources. What is it that we as the people of God hold onto and derive our sense of confidence from? It's very important that we have our confidence established and rooted in Christ, in the person of Christ and what he's done and how he feels about us, how he looks at us, how he leads us. And the Lord is committed. We touched on this last week. The Lord is committed. Hebrews chapter 12 highlights that the Lord is committed to shake everything that can be shaken in this life and in this age. And the reason that he's shaking it is because he wants people all across the nations to find their sense of confidence and security in Christ alone and to cling to him and to fall upon him and to weep over him and, and love him and hold on to him as dearly as we hold on to the many other things that we derive our sense of confidence from. I've asked this question over the last couple weeks, but how do you know what your confidence is in? Well, let me ask you this question. What has to change in your life for you to feel confident right now? What is it that has to change? Do you right now have a sense of security and confidence this morning sitting in that chair or listening online from the comfort of your home? Do you have a sense of security and confidence in God, in his work, and in his affection for you? Some put their confidence in outward things. And the way that they would answer this, what has to change to make them confident, they would say, my life circumstances have to change. I need to have more influence. I need to be taken more seriously by other people. I need to have a promotion in my job or in my ministry. I have to, something has to happen in the outward sense in order for me to have a greater sense of confidence and security. 
And when we answer that, when we begin to examine our lives and we begin to look at the things that would make us feel confident or that would convince us that we would be confident if those things changed, the Lord, what he's doing is he's, he begins to highlight and pinpoint those areas in our hearts and sometimes those areas are idolatrous because the Lord doesn't want us to be confident in our circumstances or our physical appearance or our job promotion or our where we land on the social hierarchy. The Lord wants us confident in one thing, that his work is enough to cleanse us from all sin and that his affection pours down on us like rain even today regardless of our circumstances. And this morning, you can be confident in these two things. You can be confident that if you are in Christ, born again, that his affection pours down on you like fresh rain and fresh oil, even in the midst of your weakness, even in the midst of your failure, even in the midst of the sins that easily ensnare us, the Lord delights in you because you are born again and have been given the very righteousness of God. Confidence before the Lord is established. It grows because we don't immediately start out confident in our relationship with Christ, just like we don't start out confident in a relationship with anyone. The first time you meet someone, you're not confident in the strength of that relationship. Why? Because you've just recently met them. You haven't been tested. You haven't laughed together. You haven't cried together. You haven't been offended at one another and worked it out. You haven't gone through the seasons and the journey of knowing and trusting that you're going to be understood, that you're going to be forgiven, that you're going to be fought for and contended for. And thus, our confidence in Christ grows over time and the way that it grows is by consistently applying the gospel or the message of the cross consistently applying it in our thoughts our emotions and in our actions the gospel of christ the work of the cross is something that's meant to be consistently applied to our lives not just something that's meant to be understood intellectually but it's the application of it consistently in our emotions, in our hidden life, you know, behind the face. Behind your mask lies a face. And behind your face, behind your, whatever. It's in there, you're, you're in there. What I'm trying to say is, is that, you know, the majority of your life is in secret, in your thought life and in your emotional constitution. It's how you perceive reality. It's how you engage or, or not with the Lord and with the Holy Spirit as you go through your day. Are you talking to him? How do you process disappointment? How do you process rejection? How do you process discouragement? How do you process the money running out before the end of the month? How do you process those things? And those are the internal dialogues. And the way that we grow in confidence with the Lord is to take the truths of the gospel and Christ's forgiveness and his affection for us and apply them consistently to our thoughts, our lives, and our emotions. And over time, what happens is that our confidence is bolstered and we become more bold before Christ. We become more sure in him. 
We become less shakable when our life circumstances are tested. We become less shakable when relationships in our life are strained and that there's, you know, there's turmoil and disagreement. Applied Christianity, applied gospel. Now, I remember way back in high school, which this morning, you know, I was thinking about, I was in high school 20 years ago. Now, some of you, that's not very long, but man, I feel old. I never thought I'd make it to the day where I could say, oh yeah, 20 years ago in high school, but here I am. So 20 years in high school, my school did this thing where they were like, you know, we've gotta get these kids applying mathematics to their lives so that you don't, you don't go through like algebra and trigonometry and geometry and all this stuff and then you graduate and you basically need to know essential math. I put $20 of gas into my car. I have $25, how much is left? I mean, you know, and it's kind of discouraging sometimes, and many of you know this because you're so smart, but you know, at the gas pump, it really doesn't take very much to figure things out. So anyway, so they tried to uh, do this, all this applied mathematics, you know, applied algebra, and so, Instead of just doing like the drills sheet, you know, where you just go down like one after another after another, they came up with the most intricate, detailed word problems that were like, am I reading a tongue twister? What is happening right now in this? So that these word problems would be like these advanced algebra, you know, statistic kind of equations. And I'm not used to that type of thing because word problems is like, you know, Betty has five cookies, you know. Bob takes the five cookies. How many black eyes does Bob have? <laughs> How many cookies? Do, or, anyway, don't take her cookies. Anyways, you know, it's like these, these advanced algebra problems that we'd have, and it was like, you know, Tommy has six oranges. How much does Betty weigh? It's like, what? What, is, what are you talking about? No, and, and the idea was we can't just take these concepts that are so deep and meaningful and brilliant. I mean, I know that there's, uh, you know, all these I've, I've heard because I'm not very smart in math, but I've heard that you know, when you really get into the deeper things of math, there's all of these patterns that you begin to see. And, and people that are believers, they're like, man, they really see the beauty of God in creation and in the structure of, of stuff. You know, and, and the, it's not just about applying, you know, or, or excuse me, it is about applying, rather, mathematical principles for our life. The same thing is true with the gospel. We can't just have these beautiful, magnificent truths that the PhDs argue over, you know, with their dissertations and they publish a paper and then this PhD says, no, you're wrong. And then they like fight over it and they're talking about these deep, intricate truths, but there's this application to the truths that has to have bearing upon our lives. And that's what the message of the gospel is. That's what the book of Romans is and Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians. It's, we have to take these majestic truths and, and, and they have to bear down upon my emotions on a Wednesday afternoon when I want to quit everything. They have to bear down upon us. 
And we're not just supposed to come to a weekend service and show up to church and just hear the truths of the gospel and then just go, well, that, you know, that was, that was nice. But it actually, there's, there's a place where it has to actually have an effect upon our emotions. I remember the strangest thing happened to me. It's, it, it, was, it was strange. And I'm, I'm in this prayer time. And I'm studying this commentary, okay? I'm trying to get smart. And I'm, <laughs> I'm reading, you know, this stuff. And, and all of a sudden, I just begin weeping. I just begin weeping at the truths of what this individual was talking about. He's this brilliant guy, you know, the scholar, and he's writing this stuff, and it's on the book of Romans, and I'm reading through it, and I just begin crying. And I just, I feel so tender in my heart because the truths of God's word were gaining access into my spirit. The truth of his word, it was, it was prevailing over my emotions of the day, it was prevailing over my sleepiness, over my fatigue, over my lack of this and my lack of that and, and these three fires in my life that I need to go put out and that I'm, are in the back of my head, you know. Sometimes when I'm in the prayer, uh, uh, when I'm in my devotional time or in the prayer room before the Lord, I'm just like you, you know. I just think of like, what is everything that I have to do and get done? What is it? And it's just playing over and over and over in my head. And I'm just like, ah, shut up. Let me see Jesus. You know, does anybody else feel like that? If you ever want to get your to-do task written down, just go try and pray for 30 minutes. You know, if you want to figure out the list of all the relationships that you got to go fix up that are strained and awkward interactions and people are mad at you, whatever, just try and go gaze at the beauty of the Lord in Scripture for a little bit of time. I mean, it just comes to the surface just instantly. You become the most productive human being in the world when you just go into the secret place to talk with your father. I mean, people talk about how to get motivated for work, you know, and it's like, you gotta get a vision, you gotta get a dream, you gotta get your clients, you gotta hustle, it's the grind, it's Monday morning, get that bread, you know? No, 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 I wanna assure you, if you wanna be super productive in, you know, in life and outward things, just go open your Bible and try and cry about what's written there. And everything that you need to go do is going to just come blazing into your mind. And, you're, and in five minutes, you're going to be up and kicking it out of that prayer room, out of that prayer closet, like, boom, a bat out of hell. Like, I'm ready to take over the world. Give me something to do. I'm ready to sweat. Anyways. So I'm like reading this commentary and these truths, and I'm just like, okay. Oh, man, it just pierced me. It just pierced me. I like that. I like being pierced by the truths of God's word. I like when it all shifts into perspective. And my mind clears and I get out of the hubbub. And I get out of the cultural wars and I get out of the anger and the rage and the worry. And oh my goodness, there's 
pandemic and people are angry and people are punching each other and I gotta just get out of that and Christ draws near and he begins to tell me the thoughts of my heart. He begins to tell me how he feels about me. He begins to show me what he's done for my life and that I'm an eternal being. I'm gonna be with him forever. And the cares and the worries of tomorrow, they just take back seat and I just drink in the river of his affection. I just drink in his delight. You are my beloved. I really wanna love Jesus. Like I just really wanna love him. I don't wanna just know a bunch about him. I don't wanna stand at the judgment seat of God and have all of these hours of social media commentators in the back of my life that I've invested in, but have never talked to him face to face. And it's like the first time I've ever met him. I don't want that to be my first encounter with Jesus. I don't want the judgment seat to be that first place. I don't wanna look in that Jewish man's eyes that are like flames of fire and that be the first time my eyes have ever locked with his. I don't want him to have to tell me the basics of Christianity in our first conversation because I've never learned them. I've never given my heart to them. But I've given my heart to so many other things. I've couched my life in arguments and I've got all my politics ironclad, but my love for Christ is not ironclad. I want an ironclad relationship with him. And when I stand before the judgment seat, if he brings up my political views, if he brings up this, if he brings up that, if he brings up my voting record, I would hope that that would be like secondary because his word doesn't seem to make it the primary thing, you know? Like the first and great commandment, like you will love me with all of your heart. And I read this uh, guy one time that was teaching on this and he just said like, when you close your eyes, do you feel affection for God? Do you miss him? Do you want him? Do you wanna hear his voice? Do you wanna just learn everything you can about him? Because that's what love does. Like when you love someone, you just want whatever it is. It's like, tell me the most random fact about you. They're just like, I've always wanted a pet giraffe. And you're like, whoa. <laughs> I am so in love with you for that. You know, when you're loved, like you're an idiot. It's okay. Like we need to be idiots for Jesus. Like Paul said, like basically, I'm an idiot for Christ. You know, in Philippians 3, he's like, I take everything in my life, the good, the bad, or whatever, I chunk it all for the upward call of knowing him. Like, but Paul, you're so gifted. He's like, I don't care. He, I mean, he throws it all away. He throws it all away, not just the bad. Everybody's wanting to throw away the bad stuff. That's stupid. That's easy. People are like, you need to throw away the bad stuff. That's not a Christian message. That's what every person wants to do. I throw away all my mistakes. Time I spent money in the wrong way and things got carried away. I woke up somewhere and I didn't remember what happened. I mean, everybody wants to get rid of that stuff. But what's so 
crazy about Paul is he goes, take away all the good stuff too. I don't care. Who wants to die to all their positive attributes? Who wants to die to all their gifting? Who wants to take all the good stuff of their life and all their talents and how meaningful they are and all the brilliant things they've said and all the people that love them and just, and just take that all and just go, I will I forsake all of this. All of this is garbage. I just want to know Jesus Christ. Give me him. Give me all of him. If you give me him, I mean, I'll be fully satisfied. See, people... I don't even think people believe they can be fully satisfied in God. You know, that's why we sin so much. I don't think people, I think, I think you know, today, let's just declare it. Even if we don't believe it, I can be fully satisfied in God. Now, in this life. I don't need the money, I don't need the sexuality, I don't need the position, I don't need the title, I don't need the gifts, I don't need the followers, I don't need people applauding me. I can be fully satisfied in God today. Do you believe that? Now it's just time to go live it. Go live like you can be fully satisfied in God. And help me too. Paul's confidence in Christ was applied because of the cross. Because of what Christ did and what he demonstrated. It afforded him confidence to live before God without fear or shame. Without fear or shame. When you look out at the world right now, are people not trying to battle fear and shame in every way imaginable? I'm gripped with fear, so I just, I need a sense of security. What can I fall back on? How can I couch myself? How can I be financially secure? How can I be emotionally secure? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna blot out all the haters. I'm gonna blot out all the critics. I'm gonna couch myself so that I'm never afraid and I'm never ashamed. And, and the things that cause me shame, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna boast in them. You know, we're seeing in our, in our society and culture, we're seeing people like boasting in their sin. Things that their conscience is crying out to them about. It's like, no, 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 I'm not just gonna hide this. I'm not just gonna conceal it. I'm actually gonna boast in it. I'm gonna put my chest out and say, look at me. I'm not ashamed. I'm not gonna draw back. You know, we have this whole plague of just fear and shame sweeping through our society. And see, what the cross does is it removes all of that and gives you a clean conscience and delights your soul in the riches of God's glory and grace. Your security is now in him. So even if your outward security is taken away, you're secure in Christ. You know, in the scripture and in the New Testament, they're, they're they're losing their goods. Their liberties are being infringed upon. Everything is being taken from them. And yet, they're still not afraid. They're secure in Christ. You could take someone's security, but you can't take their eternal security. 
You can't take from them their testimony and their deep relationship with Christ and throw them in a prison cell. And like Paul and Silas, they're hanging there and they're singing psalms and hymns to God. Who does that in prison, man? Those other inmates had to be freaked out. What are these guys doing? This isn't the place to sing. This isn't the church choir. You're in the dungeon, you dummies. Because their security wasn't in anything outward. It was found in Christ alone. And they knew that their life was hidden with Christ. And when your life is hidden with Christ, it can't be taken by anyone except Christ. And Paul's confident in the Lord in this. There are multifaceted outcomes of the cross. Two things I want to highlight. Number one is the legal consequences and then secondly is the relational consequences. And these are good consequences, by the way, you know. The legal consequence of the cross is that you've been redeemed of God and forgiven of him. And you've been made righteous before God at the new birth. At the moment of your salvation, if you're in Christ right now and you've been given that spirit of God that lives inside of you. Born again of the Spirit, like Jesus told Nicodemus. Guess what? You have the righteousness of God given to you by God right now. Do you believe that? You've become the righteousness of God legally before him. You die today, you go to be with him. I mentioned last week the thief on the cross. He didn't have time to go learn all the Bible verses and do all the good works and serve all the widows and orphans and the poor. And He didn't have time to do that. He was dying on the cross. And yet in his confession, see, by faith in God, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today. That's true of you. When you got saved at your youth ministry retreat, whatever that was, you know, High school was a long time ago for some of you. It was for me. 20 years, guys. <sighs> Just went by like that. I don't know what's happening. Y'all need to pray for me. The legal consequences of the cross. Here the pronouncement is made over the Christian life. God looks at you. The Father looks at you. In accordance with the law, in accordance with the written commandment of God, the standard of righteousness and holiness. Hello, his standard. That's when he looks at you through that standard, guess what he says? He says, innocent. Innocent. And you say, but I've, but I've lied and I've cheated and I've stolen and I've abused drugs and I've served time in prison and I've... Da, 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 all of my past, and he declares over you by the power and the authority of God, which no one can take away. You are innocent before me. And right next to you is standing clothed in your filthy garments, Christ, who took on your guilt. You know, the scripture tells us that God made him who knew no sin, Christ, to become sin for us. Why? So that we would become the righteousness of God. You take all your works, all of your brokenness, all of your shame and your greed and your impurity, all of your envy and your lying and anger and wrath, and he puts it on his own son. 
and he bears the penalty of the righteousness of God, the written requirement of it upon the cross. But he doesn't just stop there. He takes the garments of righteousness, the cloak of purity, that, that light that is God, the holiness of God that enshrouds and, and wraps around his son. He says, oh, this is my beloved son. This is his yoke. This is his mantle. These are his garments. And he puts them on you at the new birth. He says that you're righteous before me. You're innocent. And I love you and I enjoy you and I'm ready to have fellowship with you for all of eternity and there's nothing you can do to earn it and there's nothing you can do to go get those garments on your own. You're either in Christ, through Christ, or you're outside of Christ. There's no other way. There's no other way to become the righteousness of God unless God himself declares and imputes or imparts and credits into your own spirit. You are now righteous and acceptable before me. Who could earn that from a holy God? Who could go get their own righteousness? Who could do enough good things to become as holy as a transcendent God who has lived forever? No one. No one can. It is futile. This is the legal consequence of the cross. You've become his righteousness. And the second part, which is often not talked about, but is becoming more and more emphasized, is the relational consequence of the cross. That now because I'm legally clean before God, <clears throat> I have the boldness to approach him, to approach his throne of grace to commune and fellowship with the indwelling spirit of God. I talk to him. He talks to me. I read his word, the Logos, and it pierces my soul, and I fall in love with Jesus. And I know him, and I see him, I, I, and I know when he's speaking, and I know when he's not speaking. And I know his voice. Just like he said, my sheep know my voice. I know his voice because I'm of him and I have relationship with him. I'm not just trying to live Christianity. I am a Christian. Christ within you, the hope of glory. Christ dwells in me and in you. And because of that indwelling spirit of God, I'm, I'm in union with God. I'm in deep fellowship with him and I can have as much of him as I want. And you can have as much of God as you want in this life. I wanna, you wanna pray a dangerous prayer? You wanna pray a dangerous prayer? Pray this prayer, Lord, take me as far as I can go in you in this life. How much of you can I have? How deep can I explore? How overwhelmed can my heart be? How disconnected can I be from my flesh so that my spirit is alive and living inside of me, leading me? I want to know you in the deepest way. We have union with God. We have fellowship with the triune God from eternity past. I mean, consider the, the Trinity burning, shrouded in light and glory forever and ever into the past. Our past, his past, the ancient of days, that God of perfect love and sovereign power. I mean, power that really messes things up. 
power that melts things. Power that causes hills to tremble and smoke when he touches them with his hand. When he looks at the earth, it quakes under his presence. Power that when his light breaks forth from his face, I mean, people just hit the deck. Even exalted angels cry holy and they fall down and they gotta cover up their bodies with wings. He's so powerful and beautiful and completely different than us. I mean, they're just having a grand old time eternity past. You know, sometimes I've asked the Lord, like, why did you make us? Y'all just seem like you were having a grand old time in eternity past. Love, perfect love and understanding and fellowship and and joy, and then they made us, and they're like, yeah, we want them on our team. We're like, you can't compare that to anything. That'd be like the Olympic dream basketball team, you know, with Michael Jordan and all those guys looking at the ants and be like, we want these guys on our team. They know how to ball. They know what's up. He's looking down at us just Peons, guys, we're peons. Do you ever just go outside and just look at the stars and the, and the moon and the universe and you're just like, I am inconsequential. That's what I think, man. When I look out at the stars, I thank God for the stars. You need to get up early so you can see the stars, man. It's awesome. But when I, I know that I'm just a speck, just whirling through space, And yet this holy transcendent God goes, I want union, I want fellowship with him. I'll go to any lengths. I'll do whatever it takes to have fellowship with him. Not because I need it, but because I want it. I mean, this is amazing what the Lord has done for us. Paul says in Romans 1.1, he says that I've been separated to the gospel of God. I'm on page two of the notes. I've been separated to the gospel of God. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of our salvation. Hey, I just want to remind some of us that this stuff is good news, by the way. To be a Christian and a follower of Christ and redeemed by the blood of the Son of God is a good day. It's a good thing. We need to remember that maybe a little bit. I know I do, but it's good news. It's this good news to which Paul clung to. It is God's gospel. Now, this is the point that I wanna highlight here. Number one, it's good news because it comes from God, and it's the one message that he wants us to really get. It's his gospel. You don't mess with his gospel, man. We shouldn't mess with, we can't tweak it, and, and we don't, you may not do that because you have like a ministry and you're like teaching doctrinal errors and you know, you're like a false prophet. The way that we twist the gospel of God is by not believing it and acting upon it in a consistent way. That's how we mess with his gospel. We get too religious or too licentious. We make it all about the rules or we make it, there are no rules. See, these are the two ways that we're being pulled in our hearts back and forth and back and forth and we're either tempted into, let's make it all about rules so we can get real righteous and holy And he's like, hey, don't forget about what my son did on the cross. He's the one that made you righteous. You 
could cut out all the media and the cigarettes and the drinking and all the gossip from your life, you won't be made one ounce more righteous than I made you through my son. Now your flesh can be purified because that's pretty broken and jacked up, but your spirit before me legally is righteous and pure and holy. But Paul's preaching the gospel of God. It's the message of good news. Now, if that holy, divine, transcendent God said, hey, I want to sit down with you. I want to give you one essential message. You know, let's say you have a near-death experience, and you don't even believe in God. But you have a near-death experience, let's say, and you don't believe in God, and you go and you sit before him, and all of a sudden you're at the table, and there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit like fire. And all of a sudden, you realize this whole thing is real, okay? And then they say, hey, we have a message for you. We have something we want to tell you. We have something that we want you to, to, to live out and cling a hold of, and we know everything about you. We know your whole life. We know your past. We know your future. We know before your past. We know every thought you've thought, every word you've spoken, every motive and intent of your heart. We know that even your good deeds weren't even good. Uh-oh. Hey, that's going to be an interesting conversation at the judgment seat, by the way. It's all the stuff that we thought was so good, but then the Lord says in the Scripture, he looks at the heart. Do you know you can feed the poor? and be in the wrong spirit, and be in disagreement with God? It's just terrifying stuff, man. You sit down and the Lord says, I wanna give you this message, I wanna give you the gospel. It's, it's the message of my son, and it's his work and his life, and, and his work on the cross, and he was raised from the dead, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he's with me in glory until his enemies are made his footstool. Because I want to give you this message. It's the most critical, important message of your life. Would you prioritize that? Would you get after that? Would you find out everything you could about it? Paul goes, I'm not here trying to toot my own horn, build my own ministry. I'm here trying to tell you God's gospel. The good news. The power of redemption, the power over sin and death and disease. Your life isn't going to make sense until you get the gospel of God penetrating your heart, penetrating your life, penetrating your words and your emotions and your deeds. I invite the worship team to come out. We're going to wrap up here. There's more to cover. Because the Bible is really deep, we'll never get to the end. Let's all stand before the Lord if you'd like to. In verse 17 of Romans 1, Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it's the power of God to salvation. Don't think of the word salvation for a moment. Just, just think of the word change. The good news of Christ is the power of God for change to happen. You need change. I need change. The world needs change. 
Salvation isn't a word that we use a lot in kind of our common vernacular, but just think of the word change. We need change. We need things to change, right? I know in my life, I need things to change. My kids know I need to change. They're paying attention. Your kids are paying attention too. We need the power of God for change. <laughs> There's only one way that that change comes. There's only one way that that change comes with enduring power and eternal power and eternal ramifications. There's only one way. It's the power of God that comes through salvation when we put our faith in Christ. When we put our confidence in Christ. When we put everything that we are, just say, I'm gonna take all the eggs of my life, my basket, and I'm gonna put them all in Jesus. And if they break, who cares? They were probably meant to be broken. I'm gonna stake my claim in him. You know why? He's the only guy who got out of the grave by his power. He's the only guy. That's why I'm following him. Because he's the only man that got out of the grave and nobody else, no other leader, no other king, no other religious leader is worth following in the way that it's worth following him because they're all dead or dying. You can go to their grave sites. You can read their words. You can visit their tombs. But I want to tell you when you visit the tomb of Christ, the Son of God, that tomb is empty because he's the only one that has the power to break sin and death and the only one that has power to resurrect you forever with his Father. You're going to live in glory. You're going to live a billion years from now. This, this life, 70, 80 years, is going to seem like a little blip on the radar. It's going to seem like a moment. It is a vapor. It is the sun shining on the grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the Word of God endures forever. He's the only one that got up out of the grave. Who are you following? Who, are your, who is your confidence in? Is it in a political candidate? Uh-oh. Is it in a political party? Is it in an ideology? Is it in wealth? Is it in a relationship? Where does your confidence lie? Because Christ is knocking at the door and he's saying, if you want the power for change, it's me. I'm the only one that has an undefeated record. This morning, you found yourself trusting in some other person or thing for your change or your salvation. You found your trust in something else. You've been doing an internal inventory. You said, you know what, my confidence really is in the upcoming election season. Because a change that I foresee here could really bring about the change that I need. I really need my job to change things for me. I really need my manager to change things. I really need a, a leader to promote me. I really need to be seen and, and recognized. And I really need this. And I, where does your confidence lie this morning? And you've been doing an internal inventory and you've said, you know what? My confidence actually isn't in the cross of Christ. It's not in the person of Christ. And I've been on the roller coaster of emotions of happy and sad because of my bank account status or my political election cycle 
or if the marriage is good or if the marriage is bad, but I've been riding the roller coaster and my confidence is easily shaken. It's easily shaken. And to this morning, I wanna urge you to put your faith and your trust in Christ in a fresh way and throw yourself fully into Him and to get into the scriptures and to get into the place of prayer and, and close the door to your secret place and begin to talk to your Father in the secret place and begin to hear His words and begin to let Him.